Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 63rd episode of our podcast, I interviewed Rick Braddock, a highly accomplished executive and investor. Although most people are familiar with William Shatner of Star Trek fame, there are certainly lots and lots of people who also remember him as the pitch man from Priceline. He was partly paid in stock options and helped build massive consumer awareness for this company. And the idea for bringing in Shatner was actually Rick Braddock's, and he shares a really, really funny story on how that all came together. Rick has several years of experience as an executive at large corporations and startups where his marketing mindset helped launch several successful products with massive consumer adoption. He's currently involved as an investor and chairman of the board at multiple companies like Pipestream, Gravy Analytics, and Linkstorm. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Rick's early background in brand management at General Foods, where he led brands like Tang, Stovetop Stuffing, Shake and Bake, and others, how he grew City's credit card division to be the largest in the world in three years, the story of Priceline, one of the fastest growing companies from the dot-com era that still exists today, the evolution of Fresh Direct and how he leveraged state-of-the-art digital marketing to help turn the company around, his experience as an investor, and what he looks for when investing in a company, what mistakes businesses and investors make when trying to build a lasting brand, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note, I have some awesome news to share. As 2019 is here, we are going to be publishing a new episode of the VentureFizz podcast featuring a New York tech founder, executive, or investor every Thursday. So if you've been enjoying this podcast, we are now doubling up on the content with an episode from Boston on Mondays and now a new episode from New York on Thursdays. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Rick. Rick, thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad to be with you. Rick, you've accomplished a lot throughout your career, so I'm just going to dive right in. I always like to start off the conversation kind of going way back. So um, where did you grow up and what did your parents do for work? Well, that, that is way back, but I still think <laughs> I can remember all those, uh, all those nice uh, formative uh, years. Uh, I um, grew up in the um, Greenwich, Connecticut area, although I was actually born in Oklahoma. And my um, uh, parents, uh, my uh, um, mother was a housewife, and um, my father worked um, in business, and uh, basically the insurance business, and he was uh, very successful. He, he died um, early before the um, age of 60, and at that point he was uh, president of General Reinsurance, which was a large insurance company, uh, reinsurance company that's now um, been um, assumed by um, uh, Warren Buffett in his, um, in his organization. And so I had, I suppose, a, a, a bias toward uh, business from uh, his background and, and, um, and sort of uh, what I call demanding tutoring. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. And what brought you to uh, Hanover, Hanover, New Hampshire, which is, I, I grew up in New Hampshire. So uh, what brought you to Dartmouth? Uh, wow. Well, that's um, uh, Dartmouth um, has has become a um, sort of a, a, a family um, congregation point almost. Um, um, I have a, um, and I should say we with my wife, we have a big family, a great family, six kids and thirteen grandchildren. Wow. And, um, I went to Dartmouth, and um, subsequent to that. Two of my boys went to Dartmouth, one of their wives went to Dartmouth, and now two of our grandchildren um, have gone there, one who graduated last year and the other who's a junior. That's great. And as I tell Dartmouth, there are more to come. So, uh, <laughs> um, you know, we, uh, and, and I had a great education up there. I guess the most memorable thing to me was um, Dartmouth was um, an um, all-male school at that point, so... Mm. Uh, with all my classmates, I spend a lot of my uh, time up there traipsing around the eastern coast looking for girls' schools. And uh, uh, But uh, beyond that, I think I got a pretty good education there. And, and did you go to HBS, B-School, right after undergrad? Yes. In those days, it was, um, a, uh, it was, it was um, not as abnormal as it, it would be today. But... Um, it, it uh, reminded me, my first reaction in, in business school somewhat um, 
papered by their um, their um, sort of threats that uh, one of those look to the right of you, look to the left of you, and uh, in a couple of years, um, you know, one of you at least won't be here. Mm-hmm. And that the fact also was that there were a few people with real business acumen and experience, and um, I found uh, in terms of uh, the um, therefore the the milieu in the classroom that uh, it was very intimidating to me because um, those people sounded so much more learned about business than I thought it was only after I got out uh, that I realized that a lot of those people were back in school because they'd been in business. And in those days, the reason you went back to business school was you had sort of what I call charm skills or, or deficit. And therefore, you hadn't gotten along, uh, you know, socially with your company and we're looking for a new beginning. Got it. Now, off after HBS, uh, off to General Foods, where you know I, I assume you're in product or brand management, uh, something to, to that extent, or yeah, definitely. I'd like to say something um, up front about um, um, you know one thing uh, you get um, to do when you're um, um, my age is to look backwards um, as opposed to forwards, and. Um, I think there are um, two things that are distinctive about how all my stuff came together. And as you know, in discussions like this, you tend to hear the good things people have done and maybe not the bad things. But the fact of the matter is, um, if you're at all uh, perspicacious, you learn as much, if not more, from the bad things that happen to you than the good things. Sure. But when I look backwards, um, the one thing is, Relative to almost anyone I know, um, I have um, a significant amount of experience in what I would call um, big corporate or um, large enterprise uh, businesses, um, you know, well over 20 years. And so um, uh, in some respects, um, as we get into it, those businesses have become the have-nots today. Um, they're more or less um, being um, their their carcasses that the Amazons of the world are are feasting on. Um, the um, and and but I've also had a significant amount of experience in what you would call the uh, startup early stage uh, internet business. So also over twenty years and with um, CEO jobs in in that uh, section also. So I've um, got a. A framework to look at today's world in that respect, um, you know, with a, sort of a unique background to do it. Um, the second thing is that I'm a uh, marketing um, a purist in my in my fundamental discipline that I, I think has uh, driven my career choices. And um, I've watched marketing go from my general foods days when it was um, old traditional mass marketing, a lot of ads and promotions um, then um, into uh, one-to-one, um, which I experienced in my um, Citibank days, which we'll get to, I suppose, as we talk. Mm-hmm. But then um, led into um, the, um, the internet or online um, world when suddenly marketing, which had been a universal dimension or discipline to that point, got substantially bifurcated between online and offline. Online having real-time rhythm, the ability to know your customers in incredible depth, and um, a lot of the um, accoutrements that went with that, including um, an early uh, stage application of artificial intelligence. On the other side, um, the businesses from which I started continued to be handicapped by um, an extreme lack of understanding of their customers and no particular tools to enhance that. And so their marketing um, remained in in terms of today's world primitive, and uh, their companies were vulnerable to um, um, all the uh, incursions of the um, um, uh, online world. Um, And one last point as we get further in in talking with me, uh, the reason I'm still doing this is um, the uh, sense of innovation I want to be uh, part of and, and in many respects try to sponsor. And if you think about innovation, you don't go to the strong, you go to the weak. 
because that's where the unfulfilled un, uh, needs are. So a lot of my interest is in sort of taking my old brethren, I would call it, and trying to find ways to get them into the world that exists today and to get them into the kind of um, digital marketing that is imperative um, for companies to succeed and sometimes even stay alive today. And that's exactly why I was so excited to talk to you. Obviously, you've done so much throughout your career, but the lens that you've seen and can have perspective from working with such large corporations like major, major corporations, and then seeing the whole internet revolution and being with companies that scaled quickly during that time frame to what you're doing now as uh, an investor and, and board member. So it's a definitely a unique perspective. So General Foods, when you were there, like, are there... Were there brands that we would still, you know, think of today that you were cutting your teeth into, kind of starting your career? Yeah, well, I, um, I, I think um, the first thing I'd say uh, to uh, make you understand that I'm a humble person is that um, my first assignment at General Foods was as assistant product manager on Crispy Critters uh, cereal. And uh, coming out of, um, of uh, Harvard Business School, and um, uh, getting um, that as my first assignment. I couldn't even tell my friends at cocktail parties what I was doing. <laughs> so um, I, I actually moved pretty quickly through uh, General Foods, and I worked on brands like Tang, um, mm -hmm. the breakfast drink that in those days was part of the uh, moonshot and, and was a highly attractive business. Um, introduced a couple of big brands like Stovetop Stuffing and uh, – uh, worked on an assortment of uh, brands by the end of my time, like Good Season Salad Dressing and Shake and Bake and mm -hmm. um, Log Cabin Syrup and um, a, 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 a wide range of more established uh, brands and did a couple more uh, new product um, assignments in there too. So I had a, I had a good experience at uh, General Foods, but it was, as I said, traditional marketing and they didn't give um, – product people, much of a chance to manage, and I wanted to turn myself into more of a businessman with my future experiences. Which, you know, that, you know, your experience speaks volumes as far as uh, giving the consumers what they want and being able to scale a business around that. So those are all brands that are iconic, that you remember, and they're in many, you know, households today still. Um, and, you know, then for, you went on to City, and, you know, Citibank, I still carry my Citibank MasterCard. It was the first credit card I got my senior year in college. And um, it, so during your time there, you grew that credit card division to be the largest in the world. So under your leadership, like, like how do you get such a mass consumer adoption to happen with, with something of that scale? Well, first of all, um, my, um, I, was, I was brought into – um, Citibank more or less as a marketing guinea pig. In those days, there were very few marketers and, and none as senior as how I got hired. Um, those were the Walt Riston days when the bank was, um, you know, doing well and very curious about new disciplines. And, and so I meant it when I said uh, uh, marketing um, uh, guinea pig. My, my uh, first memory is I'd only been there about two weeks and my boss, who I was working in the New York banking division, which was a big division, and I ran a bunch of banks, about 70, and also ran the marketing um, operation for the whole unit. And we had our annual budget review with Riston, who, uh, Walt Riston, who in those days was um, a real, um, you know, icon in, in uh, corporate business in the banking world. And I was all juiced up nervous as hell to give my first presentation um, to him, um, but with great marketing slides, which marketing people know how to do, holding onto the podium with two hands. And he walked in and sat down and said, young man, tell me about marketing. <laughs> and I had so therefore to give this sort of uh, lecture to uh, someone who I was, uh, you know, um, only a little bit getting to know who I became very close to over time. Um, but um, I don't have any memory of what I said to him that day. <laughs> I didn't lose my job. So my, my quick early experience was 
um, I was um, sent abroad, which was one of the reasons I wanted to go with a company like City. I wanted to get some international experience, which General Foods didn't do a good job of uh, giving you uh, opportunities for. And I went over to London, and in a very relatively short period of time, I went from running my first business, which was a finance shop in the UK, to um, acquiring a, about uh, five businesses in various European countries. And the consumer division had just started um, more or less as I went over there. So it, but, so it became a division. And then I was brought back um, in uh, 1980, and this is one of the dates I remember, to um, pick up um, our credit card business, which had lost $100 million um, the year I came back to run it. Wow. So, um, and that was somewhat because of the Carter interest rate years where interest rates actually spiked at a little over 20%. And um, so the math was it was impossible to run a business that was subject to usury ceilings uh, well below that and uh, run it profitably. Mm -hmm. So um, I, um, and I had a lot of help in this. There's an eye that um, I was running the business, but um, the one thing about big companies that you can, can do, and um, um, it's easy to be a good manager if you uh, know you um, have to rely on people to do things that um, they're possibly better at or at least as good at than you to build your at least capacity and that you're in a place where those people exist. If you're in a new company, it's altogether different. So anyway, we formed a view um, that um, we loved the business, that we wanted to um, uh, find a way to uh, obviously run it profitably. And so we decided, and this involved um, a lot of um, political work, uh, particularly with the governor of South Dakota, we moved our business to South Dakota, um, uh, moving 3,000 jobs flawlessly, uh, mm -hmm. where there were um, no um, uh, there were no usury ceilings, and then we repriced the product. And my my marketing premise was we were in effect um, selling a, a box of Wheaties that um, we knew people would uh, pay ten dollars for, uh, that cost us five dollars to make, and that we were selling for three dollars. So when we got out there, um, we were um, able now in that environment to, to uh, um, take a uh, lock on the market because I convinced the, the people there to uh, take a bit of a flyer. And for about uh, three years in a row, we um, uh, solicited three to five million card members. That was probably the first really um, visible example of one-to-one -one marketing um, that existed. Uh, I, I think I'd call it in hindsight mass one-to-one. -one. And uh, so we, um, we um, built in only three years um, the largest credit card business in the world and we were in over um, um, 60 countries and um, it was um, a, uh, uh, you know, a great experience. We, if you fly out to uh, South Dakota and land in Sioux Falls today, you see four big buildings that ring the airport that are all ours, that are um, the servicing of that business as it expanded. Um, so um, that was a great experience. Um, um, it uh, made me a, a, a little bit of a hero. And if, uh, if Riston had remembered my uh, speech to him, uh, um, about marketing poorly, he probably forgot it at that point. So. <laughs> Very cool. I was now running not only the card business, but a bunch of brands and ATMs had come into the market and the ATMs that existed everywhere in those days were um, keypad driven. So mm -hmm. um, you had a, uh, um, you had a, a, a traditional keypad like on the computer I'm looking at uh, as I talk with you. And um, so we had to find a, a new and better way. And I had all of a sudden a lot of money to play with uh, because of the uh, success of the credit card business. So I, I took what was really a million dollars and I 
I put a simulated branch into the um, the um, below ground floor of the Daily News building on 42nd Street in New York, and it had all kinds of sophisticated one-way mirrors and and the like. And as we experimented there with the machines, um, we found a simple thing that we probably only uh, marginally understood the significance of, and that was when we put um, a touchscreen panel on the machine, um, the customer sense of control of their money dramatically went up. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, what was a real aversion to deposit money into machines like that, um, in effect, uh, went away. And um, so uh, the the, um, importance of that was that um, when we introduced um, the machines, right away, our, um, there was a national number for um, what the um, penetration of um, DDAs and banks, uh, checking accounts, by um, the um, uh, uh, customer usage of ATMs, which was about 35%. And from day one, um, we started at 70%. And in addition to that, and the whole time after that, I was at Citibank. There was never a day where we didn't take out more in deposits into the ATM than we paid out in um, withdrawals. And that's because basically we had intercepted a comfort of people to put their, their paychecks into the uh, ATM process. And that really, in many respects, the ATM really did provide a superior service to the teller. Very interesting. So that uh, was like the groundbreaking comfort level technology that consumers f- finally felt safe that they could control their own, you know, with the touchscreen, it was the greater sense of control. Yeah. And that, that now is, as you know, um, still the, uh, the, the execution of choice for that type of uh, mm-hmm. uh, customer terminal. And when you go to the air- airlines, uh, oh, you know, et cetera, you, Mm-hmm. use it and it's um it's gotten to be uh well ingrained into um our our everyday usage patterns yeah such an innovation back then let's talk about priceline so h- how did you get involved with the company and what was the stage of the business when you joined well when when i got involved in priceline um i was working alongside general atlantic and uh um, the head of General Atlantic um, took me up. Uh, we'd done a, a collaboration around E-Trade before that. Um, and um, so I, uh, I was uh, uh, taken up w- by uh, Bill Ford, who now runs General Atlantic, to meet a guy named Jay Walker, who was the founder of Priceline. And is, um, uh, he probably won't listen to this, but he's sort of a mad scientist type of very creative guy. And um, in January of uh, 99 uh, uh, or 98, uh, I, I guess it was uh, 98, um, he put together um, an investment package for four of us, uh, myself as an individual, General Atlantic, um, Allen and Company, and a guy named Nick Nicholas, who was uh, then retired president of uh, Time uh, Warner. Mm-hmm. So um, um, we each put in uh, um, an amount of money, and we had a year to, uh, um, we had, um, uh, uh, he put in front of us uh, a call to us, a put on three different um, ventures he had. One was a outfit called New Sub Services, another was Priceline, not yet in the market, and another was Walker Digital, his uh, think tank. Mm-hmm. So I started to work with him, and about July, he put um, Priceline in the market and uh, with his own money, and um, I uh, was continuing to help him, and I took him down to uh, um, uh, see Delta Airlines, which was then run by uh, Leo Mullen, who um, was a friend of mine, he'd been president of First of Chicago when I was president of City, and we had been on the Visa board together. And so they did a deal um, which um, effectively ultimately made them a billion dollars, but it also gave us um, some very advantaged inventory 
that pretty much uh, put us on the map. And at that point, um, we came back um, and uh, Jay said, look, this business is going to be really big. He said that all the time. And uh, so he said, um, um, you've, you've run businesses of size, so let's switch jobs. Um, you become chairman and CEO, I'll become vice chairman. And we did a deal and I did that. I went out and quickly uh, raised uh, some money. It was about uh, um, $40 million, but it was from some prominent investors like uh, Paul Allen and uh, um, actually George Soros and uh, um, the uh, and uh, um, Liberty, John Malone. And um, because in those days, the internet was hot. And even though we were still losing money, we were a virtual company, so we weren't losing much. And I decided to take us public. So uh, we had a little um, uh, horsing around about revenue recognition, which was a favorite regulator's ploy in those days. And so we finally got um, to go public in, in um, early uh, 99. And it was in the days of uh, the blowout IPOs of which uh, Priceline was one. So that was a that was a fun period. So who, so you probably get this question all the time as it relates to Priceline, but I, I have to ask. So who was the marketing genius that brought in William Shatner? Because that is such an iconic representation of Priceline's uh, commercials from way back when. You are a wonderful interviewer. <laughs> it, it was me. It was really. Yeah, and it's. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you this story because it's a it's a funny story. Um, I was, um, at that point, I had a, uh, um, a, a CEO, I was, I was just chairman, and William Shatner had been involved in earlier um, print copy for us, but um, we were looking now for um, a, a new ad campaign, and we had an agency, and the agency um, we had, um, um, we were looking at at that point, uh, um, was... Um, was not didn't have a, a lot of creative talent so they brought in a freelancer and he showed me a uh, print of some kind of an MTV um, experience with William Shatner singing and, <laughs> um, and, and William Shatner could not sing yeah I've heard his recordings before yes not uh... yeah. and, and so but my my view of uh, of, of uh, uh, spokespeople, which I've used many times in my past, is there, there, there need to be two principles and really not much more. One is um, they have to have some faint resemblance or, or um, association with the product. And of course, uh, Star Trek was uh, that for uh, uh, Shatner. But secondly, they have to be willing to poke fun at themselves. You don't want a cardboard figure who says, um, just because I use this product, uh, you should try it too. So um, Shatner was beyond colorful. Um, and uh, all I really had to do to keep him happy was to sit up with him while he drank martinis and, and <laughs> match him one for one. But um, we, we did a campaign, which may have been the best campaign I ever um, uh, did in my life. We bought a bunch of um, songs that were um, of, of that age, like Age of Aquarius, for instance. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had the, uh, the copywriter um, write um, Priceline lyrics to him, which were really well done. Mm -hmm. And then we sat him on a stool in the middle of a bar scene with a leather jacket and a handheld mic, <laughs> and he sang these songs. And they were fantastic. Um, and they were... Um, they really, um, I use that now as the best example I can of why the journey can, uh, it's important to make steps in the journey that have absolutely nothing to do with the business model in a real meaningful sense. And why some, some real experience can pay in taking these uh, bright ideas that often youngsters have um, and turning them into uh, the kind of uh, big ideas that they don't. And you see every day, and, and, and uh, now you can see it with um, a situation like uh, Facebook, where people just get um, so large and 
they don't do the obvious things and I'm not here to criticize them, but if you're with a business that big, you've got to have um, some kind of a process in, inside where you risk reduce the vulnerabilities and uh, sort of think your way through that as opposed to having it come over the transom in one and now lasting um, uh, thing. So I, I felt um, that that was, that was almost the most important decision I made on, on um, Priceline in the whole time I was there other than the one where I think I uh, really saved the company from the downdraft that uh, passed everything uh, through. Well, the perfect segue, because that's something else that I wanted to figure out. Like, how did Priceline survive the whole post-dot-com explosion and the travel website post-9-11? Well, what happened was that um, the the real-time... that um, hurt us um, the most was the uh, the the uh, downdraft, uh, not as much nine um, eleven, which of course hurt the whole travel business, and we took our lumps with that. But at the at, as the downdraft um, came in the um, on the uh, internet, we approached a. Uh, a, a very uh, we were in um, basically. From that 140, we were high single digits in terms of our price, and Jay Walker still owned about uh, 34% of the company, and he called me in with a very pale look on his face uh, one day and said, uh, um, you guys are screwing up Priceline, um, I've, I've got to sell. And when I dug into it, what really happened was he had gone off and started um, a new company, which was called Webhouse Grocer. And he had pledged all his Priceline shares. And he unfortunately did it through Goldman, which is not a friendly, um, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So he had had um, that whole amount um, uh, called. So he was technically bankrupt big time. And, um, and he, he said to me, well, I've got to put my shares on the market and sell them, which would have um, destroyed the company. Mm-hmm. So um, I had, um, we had started to talk um, about some international ventures and uh, one of which, which we'd gotten fairly much along on was um, with um, uh, Li, Li Kaoxing in the Far East, who at that point was uh, uh, the richest man in the world and who I had known not, not deeply personally from my uh, old banking days. Um, One of the things I learned is um, out in that part of the world, when you're president of a bank once, you're president of a bank always. So (laughs) I got a call from um, one of his underlings and uh, effectively um, he said, how can we help? And uh, I flew out to see him and uh, they bought um, Jay's um, 34%. Um, all of it. And uh, they became um, the biggest owner. And we, um, uh, we, we reverse split the stock six for one, which may be how you got to your uh, That's probably what it was. Yeah. And, and uh, we, uh, but basically it's been up ever since they are uh, no longer involved, but they sold their stake at a very healthy profit. And um, that, um, as I said, without that event, um, Priceline would have gone down. And now it's Booking Holdings, right, is what it's yes. known as. Yeah, exactly. Booking Holdings has remade the company. It was a brilliant acquisition. And while they were working on it um, during my time there, I spent about six years involved in Priceline in various uh, um, positions, always chairman or chairman and CEO. Uh, but they... Uh, they did that and they've done a great job running the company and um, it's been all uh, positive since. And then you joined Fresh Direct originally as chairman and you took over as CEO there. And uh, you know, that's a business model that has been really interesting to watch. So I was interested in hearing your experience of where that business was, um, the evolution while you were there, and then certainly want to touch upon, you know, the business today, you know, there's so many different, versions you know there's the you know i guess 
Fresh Direct was around the same time. Web Band was trying to get, you know, you know, their classic for, you know, what they're known for. Uh, but then today, you know, when I'm shopping at Wegmans, I see Instacart people roaming the aisles all the time. So anyways, if you could talk about Fresh Direct, kind of where that business model is, I'd love to hear kind of uh, the evolution of that, that whole business. Sure. Um, well, when, when I got involved with uh, Fresh Direct, I was um, first a consultant, um, then I became chairman, and then I became uh, chairman and CEO. And so my, um, uh, my first um, experiences were a little bit studying what was going on and trying to help them um, hire a, a CEO um, who um, wasn't really, um, it turned out very effective. And so I got into some of these jobs a little by default. Mm -hmm. But um, the, the state of the business was it was in, um, in decline at that point, despite being in that, those days a novel and, and sort of great idea. And um, the reason it was in decline was that um, they'd gotten to a reasonable revenue level in New York, but they had um, um, atrocious service. And when you think about a business like that, you'd have to think that, first of all, to turn yourself into, um, uh, turn your customers into loyal customers, you probably have to get them to do um, as much as, um, say, three to five transactions. So um, when you have really bad service, which um, we did, you um, have so many times to uh, stumble and, um, frankly, lose the goodwill that uh, people started with. So I've never done this um, before or since in my, in my business or marketing life. Um, when I got in as, as a full boat uh, chairman CEO, the first thing I did was I, I stopped all our new business activity, all our solicitation activity. And I said, we're not gonna do any more until we can demonstrate uh, with a lot of metrics we're tracking to show it that we can deliver quality service. And the, um, that, that the lack of incoming took a lot of pressure off what we had, and we, we did that. And then we, um, we um, instituted or reinstituted marketing programs. And those marketing programs were where I really learned um, digital marketing. And so um, we had to start out with a, um, um, with a repositioning of the company, and we came up with a tagline. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of good at these. So I did this one too. Our food is fresh. Our customers are spoiled. And, <laughs> and we, we use that to uh, build a, a certain um, you are special type of uh, orientation for our customers. And um, then we uh, backed it up with a marketing program that, that respected the multiple trial, so to speak, we had to get to get to loyalty and, and build programs to do that. But we also um, built um, a digital marketing um, type of program that's, uh, frankly, as, as, as good as Amazon's. We had um, all the um, algorithmic querying of our database. And of course, we had a really rich database. We knew every SKU that every customer had ever bought with us. And um, the big watchword that makes the internet better than the offline world um, even to this day, is the word welcome back. Mm -hmm. and welcome back is the, the premise that um, um, because I know you and I know all, what you've done on all your past visits, I'm going to make this experience even better. So we use that database to deliver things like uh, um, uh, because of what you bought before, you might also like or special promotions on things we thought they could be interested in or um, customers like you um, preferred this, or cross-sell uh, if you order a steak, uh, here's a recommendation on mm. some steak sauce and whatever. So we, we very much personalized and made the message um, real-time and lasting, I would call it. And uh, so as I say, when I left uh, Fresh Direct behind, I knew a lot more about digital marketing and what works even to this day than I did before that. So that was not only a, a fun experience, but a learning experience. Your broader question gets to the fact that, um, first of all, um, food is a category that has two 
um, major um, factors that, that um, play to it in the current environment. Number one, there's never going to be the kind of conversion to uh, what you'd call e-commerce that there is in other categories because there's a large segment of customers who want to squeeze the tomatoes or whatever you call it, but who re require a, a real-time experience there. Um, and um, secondly, that the grocery P&L is a better P&L to pick from than it is to participate in. So you've got a um, you've got a high cost base and a very low margin. So a thing like Instacart um, assumes not the P and L, but they take um, a special feature and they create a, a better solution for the customer in that regard. But they do it in such a way that they make money off that special feature for the for the uh, grocer it, it uh, becomes uh, actually um, an added cost to keep their customer happier. Mm -hmm. But then the uh, single service products uh, like Blue Apron, which have had their own problems to date, um, are, um, are, are, are just hiving off pieces of the grocery uh, P&L. Mm -hmm. So grocery itself, rema itself remains a very um, high, um, high volume business but with likely um, low conversion to uh, e-commerce. Um, I read an article the other day saying they're, they're tipping at 2.5% when um, e-commerce is already between 10 and 15% of total retail sales in their categories. And um, so, uh, and the models like a fresh direct really didn't go all the way to disintermediate um, the supply chain. So uh, Fresh Direct had to build um, 30 to $50 million warehouses everywhere they went. Mm -hmm. And um, they had to build them from scratch. So the competition knew they were coming like three years before they uh, got there in effect. And meanwhile, some ripoff uh, business models like um, it's um, Web Grocer, I think it's called, which were uh, in effect bolt-ons on the top of say Kroger's where you could um, sell Kroger's product through the internet and fulfill it through their warehouses that were already standing. So you could get into this um, online business with little or no um, capital investment. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, um, Fresh Direct is in a few other markets, but uh, it's not a, um, it's not, going to expand as a model, I don't think, very far. Now, you, you're also um, you know, an investor, and there's uh, multiple companies in your, your portfolio. So what, what types of companies are you, uh, you know, looking at these days and, and you know, the type of disruption? Well, first of all, um, uh, going back to my earlier point, um, I invest in companies where I see um, a, um, a, an, a, an attractive um, business model and, and ideally entrepreneur, of course, but where I see um, a um, route to scale that um, can be accomplished and that I can help with. And um, I, generally speaking, don't invest in things very much that I don't take a position in. And my favorite positions are chairman or executive chairman. So I'm uh, I'm that, and, and depending on how you count, probably four companies to date. And I'm also lead investor in a couple of others, which where I've got the ability to um, sort of get people to listen to me um, also. So um, I'm, I'm really, um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to still be active. I, I don't um, view myself particularly as an investor. Um, and I get involved in, in probably the hardest decisions, which are that um, an entrepreneur who can look great to you one day um, can be a flame out too much, not too much further along the way because the challenges change and um, um, many don't, uh, don't change uh, with them. Um, you know, it's sort of the reason a lot of, you know, marriages go kaput here and there. And uh, it's the same principle about an entrepreneur 
pursuing his dream and waking up later and realizing the pursuit of it requires skills he doesn't really have. And uh, many, if not most people have emotional problems accepting that. And that leads to uh, a lot of the turnover that happens um, in that regard. Uh, you obviously have been involved with so many great companies, great brands. Um, so, so what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen companies make while trying to build a lasting brand? Well, I think that um, it's not just um, the, um, the, the, um, the people building the companies. I think it's the um, investors who are, are guilty as, as charged of what I'm about to say which is no one is adequately focused on the journey to scale, on which is where all the value is created. Um, the investors look at these things, they talk about the technology, they talk about uh, um, you know, a, a good entrepreneur at the front, they talk about a business model, and then they leap over this incredible abyss and they create um, you know, unicorns. And, um, some of them do it very well. Like I'm, I'm wearing some Allbirds shoes as I mm. uh, speak to you. Nice. And they have um, done a superb job on service, and they've got a really, uh, um, they're they're on a great path, and and uh, they probably got to um, unicorn status well before people would have predicted. But the point is, um, a lot of the wreckage that occurs, occurs in that space. And I don't think, I, I just have a lot of disdain for um, most investors in this respect. A lot of them have these um, fake uh, business advisors and uh, associated with them. And they don't really um, use them properly. And um, they um, their first reaction is to just... Uh, pile follow-on investments on, um, um, you know, their initial investments. And there's a philosophical point here. When you leap out and create a unicorn, you've lost the ability to arbitrage the journey. Mm -hmm. What I would say in concept is that you should have an inter intermediate point when you get involved in a business that is a point of delivery along the way. It doesn't necessarily obviate or change the trajectory you would have to, uh, to uh, scale, but it um, is a point where you can, in a measurable way, demonstrate progress that makes it much more predictable you're gonna get there. And um, if you arbitrage that journey, it gives you a lot of intermediate chances to make judgments about um, what's going on, as opposed to this sort of, um, throw up the uh, the big money that um, Silicon Valley particularly has to spend on these things or now China and sort of um, uh, close your eyes and, and hope when you open them, um, you've got a unicorn on your hands. Uh, you know, there's going to be an article written um, pretty soon about how many of these unicorns have failed mm -hmm. even in the last uh, couple of years. Now, why do you think so many companies fail on the, you know, the customer experience part? Because they aren't, um, they aren't really focused on it. I think they're focused on, um, you know, does their technology work, and does their um, does their uh, model make sense, and does their um, their their um, perceived journey result in a very high valuation, for which they have um, oftentimes been rewarded in advance. So the idea of, to me, a lot of management, certainly at the level of where I am in, in life, that I do is thinking. I would say my view of management is it's only 50% doing, it's 50% thinking. It's figuring out what you want to accomplish, and most importantly, how to measure it, and then how to create a disciplined management process that delivers that, and it's um, a it's it's an imperative. And um, there's I've never met an entrepreneur really who understands philosophically um, the value of that. And they're either think they're on a on a, a roller coaster because they got through the first phase and they saved their company from going belly up in terms of the first fundraise, and now they got wind at their back with a decent amount of money. And uh, they, um, 
but they don't change their orientation to where they, they now have to traverse that journey. They have to get their version of William Shatner. They have to get uh, customer service um, in a way that is, is really customer friendly. Um, they have to understand how to use um, digital marketing uh, to uh, really uh, build their business. They have to be um, like a Jeff Bezos, to be utterly customer focused when you've got all your investors yelling at you um, to make more money. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you, you, there's a, there's a, in, in, in my experience in life, there's a, another truism, which fortunately I've never had to document to anyone, but it is that any field you look at, um, particularly if you're looking in terms of growth and growth management, um, 95% of the people are really perfectly happy to go to bed every night and hope that tomorrow when they wake up, it's just like yesterday. And if you're really a true growth manager, you have to wake up every day and you have to say, how can I make things better? How can I take the half empty glass and fill it? And to me, that's a, that's a, uh, um, that's a missing art that um, is, uh, and, you know, it goes with um, humility. Um, the reason I come up with some of these things, they may be wrong, but um, I've got some scars too. And when you look at your scars and you, uh, you, you look at um, all these other people who are traipsing along um, without much of a questioning attitude about things that really ought to be questioned before they become meltdowns and sort of debacles, uh, you know, or, or job losers for people. It's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, you can, you can only make these mistakes once when you're a, a single practitioner. And if you keep making them or you are a category that keeps making them, um, you know, uh, so, so I'm not, um, I don't think anyone would, um, interview me to be a cheerleader of, um, how the growth world is is doing, except for the fact that I think it's wonderful it's there because the rest of the economy is just completely incapable of um, of adjusting to those opportunities. Well, Rick, well, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your professional journey. Obviously, you've accomplished so much, and it's just great to hear all the stories and um, you know and all the pieces of advice that you shared with our audience. So, thank you for your time. Well, again, I'm um, glad to have spent the time with you, and it uh, gives me a, a nice, pleasant uh, way to vent, and uh, that's <laughs> me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.